Welcome back to Deep Thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. On this very windy fall evening in California, uh, the temperature must be moving in because you're going to hear from time to time, probably for the first half hour or so, some wind blowing through this door. I closed an upper window to hopefully reduce that pressure. But it's, uh, it's, it was a beautiful day today. It was awesome. And today, to celebrate fall, no irony whatsoever, we're going to review the movie Andromeda Strain. Now, what you could do with this episode, because I'm going to take you to the end again, and I'm going to give you a warning that we're going to go into it and cover a lot of details. What you could do, if you haven't seen Andromeda Strain, which again, you can download on archive.org, just go to archive.org, type in Andromeda Strain, download. You can get a copy of this movie if you just want to watch it on your computer or your phone. The reason for covering this film is, one, it's an amazing film from 1971. It's utterly fantastic and seasoned. It's, a, it's based on a book by Michael Crichton. And it is pitched as a film that was a result of a real emergency that occurred with the United States Air Force, a.k.a. maybe some sort of NASA satellite system. But, you know, you never know whether or not that's real. They have a plate at the beginning of the movie that really lays down that this is a real thing and that the paperwork was going to be released shortly after this. And I have lived my whole life and never heard of any, you know, paperwork that's released. Michael Crichton, who also gave us Westworld, Jurassic Park, The Sphere, was, quite frankly, to film what Rod Serling was to television. What's really cool about Michael Crichton, as is evident by his writing, I've read his books, and again, he wasn't necessarily writing any of the screenplay stuff, but the stuff he wrote just went right into film. And of course, his vision for Westworld got augmented by Gangster World from 1991 and then turned into HBO's Westworld, which I think complemented sort of where Michael Crichton's brain would have been today had he not died an early death. But Andromeda Strain is, quite frankly, a perfect sort of developmental mystery about an event that occurs in this film. So to get back to my point, you could probably, I'm going to try to put a little, uh, little footnote in this episode of when you can jump out to go see the film. And you will have basically seen the trailer here on this episode to get you kind of enticed in it. I had a buddy of mine who's not into any of this stuff and I don't know how we got on the subject and I gave him five minutes, three three to five minutes of just what it was about. And his eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger. He's like, wow. And he actually transcribed it into his phone to make sure he watches it, right? I'll be very impressed if he actually watches it. He, he would. He should. There's a guy in the movie that acts just like him. And he's one of the scientists. But then we're going to go a little bit deeper in the film. And I'm going to give you another moment to jump out to see how it ends, if you want to watch it and see how it ends. There is, I've seen this movie twice as an adult. When I saw it as a younger man, I didn't 
I don't know if I got the first scenes. I don't know if I knew where I was in the script. And it it's complicated for a younger person. It also has a baby that cries in it at a few scenes. It's actually not too bad when you actually watch it, but I very much dislike the sound of a baby crying. But it's a very, very important factor in this movie. So the director isn't putting it in there just for tension. He's putting it in there for a reason that Michael Crichton determined. This is directed by Robert Wise, who also produced it. Another little name you might recognize is the name Doug Trumbull or Douglas Trumbull, who worked on 2001, uh, more than, well, was released in 68, so you need to know. He worked on it for about 65 to 68, dropped that little movie. This is where Doug really cut his teeth. If you pay attention to the opening credits... One of the last credits you're going to see, because they had to roll all the credits first back in the day. Remember, George Lucas was the guy that fought Hollywood to roll credits at the end of a movie. Not until 1977 did you get an opening sequence. And then at the very end, you get a few plate graphics or sorry, plate credits that we have today. We get the director out, we get the major stars out and then the movie starts. Right. Well, Lucas, if you just remember 1977 where the Star Destroyer is chasing the Corvette and starts firing on it, right? It's a big deal. Over Tantooine. This movie rolls all the credits first, within reason. But if you read the fine print, it says that Caltech and JPL, which are very, very close to each other physically here in Los Angeles, Pasadena area, they helped consult on this film. And I have to say, the science is incredible in this film. It's incredibly accurate. When I watched it again for the first time in 40 years with a buddy of mine, I actually figured out what this thing was in the film. And partly because of my background and stuff that I cover, but a lot of it just happened to be that the, the breadcrumbs that they drop in this film are actually perfect, absolutely perfect. And it makes sense. <laughs> what this thing is makes sense. It's really cool. I'm giving you that trailer in case you just want to get a little bit of a bite. So it's about a project called Scoop. And they put the whole thing on the back of the Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California that NASA launched a satellite. They don't really say NASA. As far as I remember, they don't say NASA. They really say the Air Force. And they sent a probe up into space. They don't really cover the details. But it's up there trying to gather maybe some of the particles in low orbit, high orbit. You don't know. And what's really crazy is this movie has this dish. It's like a it's like a little dish. I'll show you a picture of it, of course, in the in the video of this. And it just so happened to match a satellite that they launched and it utterly failed. And I think around 03 to 05, somewhere in there where they were trying to get the dust from the sun. And it came down and just flopped into the um, the mud because the parachute didn't work. And they, they nearly look identical. It's crazy. But the opening of this movie, outside of an incredible uh, credit sequence and the music, it's just really cool, man. I mean, it could be 
the opening sequence could be nearly something you would release in 2023. It's so modern and so edgy, and the music is just, it's not really music. It's more like a, a bizarre set of sound effects and stuff. It's just super cool, and it's a little montage of of top-secret paperwork and radars and maps and all kinds of stuff. But they have this town, Piedmont, and it is where the satellite is coming down. Piedmont is a town with 68 people in it. But they, the satellite landed somewhere in this town. It's this little tiny town up against a, a little you know, mountain relief. Not really a mountain, but just a little hill there. And so these two covert you know, soldiers are in a van, and they have these giant binoculars, and they're looking, and it's kind of day-night shooting. It visibly is daytime, but they've put the filter on it to make it look like it's nighttime. And they're looking and they're looking and they don't really see any movement, but it's nighttime. Makes sense. And so then they look up for a split second and they notice that there's a huge cloud of buzzards flying around this town. And one of the guys goes, man, I didn't know buzzards flew at night, you know, and he's like, well, neither did I, but... uh that's what they look like, and they probably don't fly at night, and since this is day-night, just getting these buzzards to fly around, uh, I don't think we have the visual effects to pull it off without it looking really bad, because it'd be hand-animated buzzards, and they somehow must have put a bunch of stuff on the ground and got a bunch of buzzards to fly in a circle and then filmed it. It's actually quite a, quite a feat they pulled off. But Project Scoop... If you think about it, it's to scoop up the satellite. Vandenberg's got the guys. And you know what? What you have to understand is they, even though it's a very important mission, as far as that mission control, it's not a big deal. They don't seem to be, you know, like it's not like NASA headquarters or JPL headquarters when a rover lands on Mars and everyone's like, yay, or, you know, SpaceX Hollywood studio, right? But the date is February 5th, 1971 in this movie. So any of you are born on that day, you can be like, oh my God, it's my birthday. But they start looking at this town because they get in the van and they're like, we need to go pick this thing up, you know. And let's pick it up at night because then nobody knows it was even there. And the closer they get to this town, they're starting to notice bodies. Bodies everywhere. Apparently... Something has killed everyone sort of just immediately. They sort of just fell down. You got family members, uh, mother, father, child. You've got two children. You've got a mother and a child. You've got a guy. It's just everybody just seemed to collapse. So they freak out a little bit, of course, and they call into the headquarters at Vandenberg. They're like, guys, and it's just some guy sitting there kind of eating his lunch. And he's like, okay, man, you know, I'll put you on the speaker. Tell me what you what you're seeing. And the guys are like, hey, man, uh, we're seeing lots of bodies. We're seeing a lot of bad stuff. And the guy's are like, oh, my God. And so they end up calling up to a really important major, get him involved. And so then the guy's like, okay, what's going on here? And so they put him on the loudspeaker, and they kind of have a oscilloscope of their voice. And they just keep getting closer, and they keep just saying, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, this is really horrible. And then at one point... One of the dudes uh, appears to be a, hit by something. Another guy goes, my God, you see that flash of light? 
And then there's this boom and there's a silence. And the guys are basically flatlined on their voice track, right? Which is kind of a nice um, kind of dual imagery system that they're not really looking at their heartbeats or looking at their voice, but it still flatlines. And at that point, this major Manchek guy calls in a recon flight. And it's like, scramble this dude out of a jet and get him to fly over this Piedmont, take photographs ASAP. So here comes this fighter. And he's got this camera hooked onto his joystick. And just like Battlestar Galactica, when they push that one button, you know, and it would fire, he's pushing his button and they film the underbelly of this plane and it's got this optic and it's just screaming out, you know, thousands of frames of this place as it flies over. There's a continuity issue, too, because he uh, he flies over the plane, flies over the town, and there's a 57 Chevy in the middle of the town that's kind of cockeyed, you know, due to someone dying. And then when the guy, you know, looks over, he uh, somehow is able to almost, well, he's in the film, he would have done a complete U-turn, like exact U-turn, and they ran the footage backwards to get an extra shot of Piedmont into the film, and it's basically running that same footage backwards. It's kind of funny. Not too many mess-ups in this film, I'll tell you. So now, they get the footage back, and they take a look at it, and Manchek's like, oh my God, I'm going to declare a state of emergency. And he says, uh, we need to round up Division 21. Let them know there's a fire. It's so cool. The way they round up this team that becomes the cast of this film is just super cool, super smooth, and it's a little caricature, um, a little bit, but any more detail and it would be sort of unnecessary. They do a great job. But Manchek, in order to get this thing started, there's this wild, it's all this government protocol and all of this sort of technique of communicating about top secret information that is so beautifully orchestrated in this book slash script slash film. And this Manchek guy, he goes to a red phone in a kind of like a little private janitor's room or something. And he picks up the phone. And I think he identifies himself. I'm not even sure he identifies himself yet, but he holds up to his, you know, his ear. And this voice is, this voice recording says, okay, state your name, state, state why, you know, you're using this telephone and hang up. And so he rattles off his name. He says, man, we got a problem hangs up the phone and then it begins. So now they have to pick up four people. Still kind of the trailer so far. Dr. Jeremy Stone is having a party at his house. He's got all these guests over. It's a gorgeous little house. It's a normal size house, but you know, his wife is all dressed up. She looks absolutely gorgeous. And someone rings the doorbell. Well, you know, it's a party. Everyone's still arriving. So the wife opens the door and she just looks unbelievable. And there's uh, two military guys there. And then there's a car out by the curb with the dude pacing back and forth with the rifle. Some type of M4 or something. And uh, she, you know, they say, is, uh, is Dr. Stone here? We're looking for Dr. Stone. Please bring him to the door. And she's like, well, what, you know, we're in the middle of a party. And he's like, please, ma'am, bring Dr. Stone right away. 
And she is in this beautiful level of shock about the event that's happening. Like, really? You know? And so she kind of winds in, finds the husband. Honey, there's some guys at the door, you know, asking for you. And he's like, oh, I'll take care of it. So he goes to the front door. The wife's standing next to him. These two dudes in front. And this is what's cool. The top military guy, I don't know what rank he is, probably some major at least. He goes, uh, sir, we've got a fire. Or there is a fire. Instantaneously, Dr. Stone's like, okay, honey, I got to go. <laughs> he's just like, no messing around. Boom, he's out. And of course, she's like, hey, honey, what did, wait, we got a party and stuff. And he's like, don't worry, sweetheart. I am as safe in their arms as I am in yours, you know. And he just takes off. He gets inside the car. And it's a little, you know, some sort of town car that can get him chauffeured. It's like an old Lincoln with suicide doors. Kind of the limo kind, but not too super strong, super long, but really nice. He sits in the back and they give him an envelope. And right on the outside of the envelope is a sticker that basically says, Top Secret. You know, any divulging of what you're about to read is going to result in a 20-year prison sentence and two $20,000 fine right on the envelope. Which for 71, 20000 doesn't seem like it's uh, threatening enough. I think they should have bumped up to two hundred grand, but whatever. You could buy a Corvette for about seven grand around that time. But what's interesting is, so he's just about to open the envelope and they cut back to the house. And the wife is the daughter of a senator. And of course, she's flustered. She's like, oh my God, my husband just got lifted out by, you know, two military guys with another dude with a gun. Don't know what's going on here. And she's kind of uh, indicating that she's sort of in the dark about what her husband does. He's very advanced in research, as we're going to find out. And so she tries to call her dad. She gets her dad on the phone. He basically says, hello, what's wrong? She says, Jeremy was just taken away by two military guys. All of a sudden, click, the phone's off. A woman's voice comes in and says, uh, this call has been terminated for national security. You will be a bre- you will be briefed at the appropriate time. It's kind of cool. Now, I can say this now because my buddy passed away, but one of my mentors and bosses and business partners, you could say for a short period of time, and friends for life, uh, was a alphabet agency programmer. I mentioned him a couple of times, but if you're new to the channel, and I saw some pretty wild stuff, man, printed on paper. There was a time when uh, he lived in San Diego and I lived in, gosh, I think it was it was either the Bay Area or Ventura County. And we're just talking about life. And I mentioned that little three letter acronym where he worked and uh, might be the third letter in the alphabet's the first letter. And he's on the other side of the phone. He goes ah, like this and boom, our phone went dead. Now, first I thought maybe he's just hanging up on the phone. Not a not a bad idea. He knows what the protocol is. I don't. He wouldn't let anyone take any photographs of him at parties. I didn't see a photograph of him until much later. He was the first guy to invite me to Facebook, too, which was interesting. But I still don't think he had a picture of himself up there for quite a while. Anyway, I try to call him back. And, of course, if he just takes the phone off the hook in that time frame, uh, you know, I don't know if it would give a busy signal or not, but the phone was dead. His phone was dead. Can't reach this number, dot, dot, dot. I mean, he was like offline. So that stuff was very real. 
And obviously, it, no one was humanly listening to us, right? It was some sort of software that heard that acronym and just said, boom, he doesn't get to have that conversation. And what's interesting about it was I didn't call him back like right away the next day or anything. Or I didn't even mention it ever again. We just continued with our lives. It was interesting. We don't get to see what Stone read in the envelope. But what we do see is that he flies out of SFO, San Francisco Airport, on a TWA airline. My joke at the time when I watched the film last was I see, see that, that Andromeda strain so bad it killed the airlines. The next doctor is Dr. Charles Dutton. He's an older guy. And he's sort of uh, a grandfather in his place. He's already been notified. He's already getting ready to go. I, I can't quite tell who's who. There's an older woman in the room, I think is his wife, and she's really kind of flustered about it. But she understands. But she's she's it's real late at night. She's in her nightgown. And I think there's a younger daughter. A younger woman is his daughter. And and. You know, the wife's like, come on, I thought you were out of this game. I thought you wanted to retire and go to Alaska, you know, and he's like, you know, well, this is big, you know, or not, he doesn't say that. He just says, big. this is important. I got to go do this. And this little grandson runs in the room and says, dad, you know, grandpa, uh, there's two guys out front or military guys out front. One's got a gun. (laughs) And so we can assume it's exactly the same scenario as uh, Jeremy Stone, Dr. Jeremy Stone. Now, what's going to be interesting is I'm going to explain to you as soon as I get done with the the team getting put together. I'm going to explain to you what these folks do so that it's a little easier for you to understand the film if you watch it. Because it was a little, if you deserve, if you're an adult and you just watch it, you'll be just fine. But if you casually have seen it in the past and you didn't really get into it like me, or it's been a long time, this will help. Sutton goes out, boom, or Dutton, sorry, Dutton goes out, D-U-T-T-O-N. The third doctor is Dr. Ruth Levitt, and she is sort of a, uh, an older woman, a little portly, and she's a little genius, you know. She's in her laboratory, and she is running some medical experiment that's got a timetable on it. She's running cultures, and it's very important. She has an assistant there, another woman. And they, instead of, what the, they don't replay the drama of someone knocking on the door, because they've already done that with Jeremy. She's automatically talking to those two guys. And she's like, man, I can't leave. I can't leave. I'm in the middle of an experiment. It's taking me weeks. This culture is going to pop out here, and we're going to need to immediately move it into this other phase. I just can't leave right now. But she is a real uh, sassy woman. Let's just tell you that much. She's obviously brilliant, and she's just not going to take any crap. And she's a very... has a. She doesn't swear anything, but she would, if it was in a modern day setting, she would be definitely have a pretty filthy mouth uh, in defending her research. It reminds me very much of the woman who played Nurse Ratchet, who was in Brainstorm, very similar character that they wrote in Brainstorm. Eventually, the way they get her motivated is there's a little inference that she might have some sort of medical issue that would prevent her from actually running this particular lab. It's sort of a passive-aggressive threat. Instantaneously, she realizes, okay, all right, you got me. All right, I'm going with you. Don't worry. That's the third one. She's on board. The next one's a gentleman by the name of Mark Hall. Mark Hall's an MD. Not a scientist as much as a medical doctor who does surgeries. 
He is doing an appendectomy. He's scheduled to be doing an appendectomy right now. And so they rush over to the hospital, these two guys. He's all scrubbed up. He is literally in the surgery uh, theater. They have cordoned off the belly that's going to have the cut. And he's got the scalpel. He's just about to go down to the flesh. And they yell at him through the window, don't do that. You know, stop what you're doing. And he looks over and, you know, this is like serious business. And he goes, I got a patient right here. And they immediately go, Dr. So-and-so is going to take over for your surgery. You need to come out right now. You've been summoned by Dr. Jeremy Stone. He's like, oh, gosh, okay. And there's a Dr. Roberts, too, which is this uh, thicker, older guy who's sort of at some sort of command center. He might be at Vanderburg. Uh, This is really where where the headquarters is of the whole thing. And he's sort of the liaison with the White House. So whatever the scientists come up with, Roberts, a much more senior, older guy, probably in his mid-50s, he's the one who's going to relay the findings, right? So the next scenes are going to be involved in Dr. Jeremy Stone and Dr. Mark Hall going to Piedmont, New Mexico, to see what the hell happened. So if you want to jump out now and watch the movie... You've seen the trailer now. All right. So now we have a helicopter. It's an old military Huey painted blue with Air Force written on the side of it. And Dr. Stone and Dr. Hall are inside these super cool kind of hazmat-y suits, but they're way more intense. They are absolutely sealed type suits. Now they're holding their helmets right away. They're very nice. I mean, someone spent some money. They built three of these suits. One for the pilot helicopter, who's fully loaded. One for Stone, one for Hall. I don't think Hall has his helmet on at first. But they're just having this conversation about what they're going to find. And of course, neither one of them know what happened. They just hear that there's bodies and that the two soldiers that went to go pick up the satellite lost uh, connection with Vandenberg. And that's it. That's all they know. And that's when Stone turns to... Uh, Well, actually, Hall asked Stone, he's like, why me, man? I'm not a scientist. I'm just an MD. Why am I here? He says, well, you're a damn good doctor, plus you're single. So you're the odd man out in hypothesis. He goes, what the hell is that? And he goes, why haven't you been reading my information I've been sending you? And he's like, I I don't, you know, whatever. I don't read that crap. Now, they're going to define this odd man out thing a little bit later. But this is where the film kind of jumps around a little bit because they're trying to set up a little bit more pretense. They begin a flash forward sequence. So this is like February 5th, maybe February 6th now. Day one for our people. And there's a Senate hearing and it's a panel of senators in the standard room. You've seen all those movies where it's sort of a reverse horseshoe, you know, and there's only one guy out there. And they're talking, and it's April 15th, or April 14th, 1971. And these senators are now talking about this laboratory and what happened. And there's a guy there, you know, defending the fact that it exists. And they're kind of razzing him because he said, uh, you know, wasn't it Stone that wrote some letter, you know, back in uh, two years, two years ago that basically said we need this $19 million laboratory just in case there's some sort of... Uh, virus that might be picked up from uh, an outer space 
journey that would have to be taken to a very special place to be analyzed. But they reveal in this letter from uh, March 20th, 1969 in the movie that this facility was built to basically be able to perfectly analyze something that is from out of this world and that it actually has a nuclear bomb in the bottom of it just in case anything gets loose. And this nuclear bomb is going to blow the whole place up. Now that's a BSL-5 laboratory, wouldn't you say? So the helicopter, which we rejoin now, is approaching this Piedmont town. And they look down and they see the birds, all the buzzards that were flying over in the morning hours with the two soldiers are now nibbling on a bunch of the bodies. And the scientists are like, oh my God, this is bad because those birds could fly off and spread the disease or whatever the hell killed all these people in a split second. We'd have a pandemic, you know, or some spread that we wouldn't be able to take care of, right? So they drop these gas canisters down that blow out kind of a yellowy, it's really kind of a marker beacon thing you might use in any war field. But they say it's gas and that it's just going to kill the birds. If there is any living humans down there, it won't hurt the humans. How fortuitous, right? Now, this sequence, when they get down, is super cool. The way they pull this off. They tell the helicopter, never land. No matter what, never ever land. Stay at least a thousand feet. We will signal to you when you're to pick us up. We're going to use the rope ladder to get down, the rope ladder to get up. So this helicopter is never supposed to touch soil. Kind of cool, right? Making sure it never gets exposed to anything that's down there, lest, lest it be incredibly aggressive and airborne. And the, the beautiful shot of dropping them off is great because they don't waste your time with crawling down a ladder there's just a puff of smoke, and all of a sudden, the guys are on the ground, and the smoke clears. It's almost like a western. It's super cool. But these dudes start going around the town, and they're looking at bodies. And where the birds have been nibbling, what's strange about it is there's no blood. There's like open wounds. It's like basically like it's cooked meat or something, but it's not, you know? And they start this incredible sequence, which was sort of a 70s, maybe late 60s kind of technique, where they use an optical printer to create almost a comic book, uh, very tastefully done, very, very modern looking, not some Marvel comic thing. But they start isolating each one of the dudes, either Stone or Hall, looking inside windows. And then when they look inside the window, in order to deal with the amount of information they're trying to give us about what they're seeing, they show a photograph of what they're seeing. And it's just a ton of people frozen with their eyes open. All ages, young, old, and they're all in the middle of doing something. One of them is an old woman who hung herself off her banister in her house. Just a little old lady hanging from a rope. She leaves a letter behind. Her dog, I think, is dead on the stairs. And she says, you know, the second coming finally is here. God bless all you guys, because if your soul's not clean, you're out of here. You know, one of those kind of letters. And Hall realized, I think it's Hall, realizes that, wait a minute, whatever killed all these people didn't kill everybody instantaneously because this woman had the time to see everybody start dying Think about the, you know, apocalypse, the second coming, 
and then write the letter and hang herself. If you think about it, the Andromeda strain didn't get her. She got herself. But it seems like just there's some peculiar things going on in this town. Like people are in weird states. And so they're trying to find this beacon that's inside the satellite, which is giving off sort of a sonar pulse. And they end up finding it in the town doctor. And they realize, hey, the town doctor is a target anyway, because if someone's ill, someone's going to go to the doctor to get better. And we're going to find probably maybe maybe a mass of people at his house. No such mass was found, but they go inside the doctor's office and he is laid out dead on his chair, mouth open, eyes wide open. And on his table in his office is the satellite. And he has managed to get it open, not only get the outer casing open, but he's opened the container that's in the center of this satellite, which is obviously, if it caught something, it's inside that area. And so the guys, they're looking at this guy going, oh my God. Not only did the dude open it up, he opened up the center container. And of course, that's why we got something going on here. But Hall's smart. I figured this out right when he did it. He grabs the doctors, uh, the dead doctor, and puts him on the floor and starts pulling down his pants. So he's face down. He starts pulling down his pants to see his buttocks. And he goes, look at this man's buttocks. And Stone, I uh, was like, I don't have time for this. You know, it's, uh, And he thinks he's joking around. He's like, I'm not joking around, man. He says, when people die, the blood goes to the lowest part of the body. That butt should be very bruised, and it's not. And so they're like, oh, yeah, that, that is really weird. So he takes the guy's wrist, the dead doctor's wrist, and he slices it with a scalpel. Now, you might expect maybe uh, coagulated blood to come out or maybe nothing, depending on how long it's been, but it's only been a day. And to their total shock and surprise, this red dust falls out of the cut. The doctor's blood turned to dust. And now it's just falling out of his body like dust. And like, what the hell's going on, right? And so they're like, okay, we're going to have to figure this out later. Help me wrap up the satellite. They brought a bag and they start wrapping it up and they help me carry it to the van. It's not that big. It's about about as big as maybe a trash can lid in, in diameter. And it's got kind of this conical shape. And they're carrying it out to the van. And suddenly you hear a baby cry. And they're both looking at each other like, wait, wait, did you hear that? You know, like, did you hear it? And they're like, they hear it cry again. And they start kind of moving closer to this thing. They put the satellite just inside the van, you know, mid-door. And they keep walking. Well, then all of a sudden the helicopter comes by and it's making so much damn noise. They can't hear the baby anymore. So they're like, go away, go away. And the guy's like, dude, you're running out of time. And they said, that's fine. Go away. You know, so the helicopter makes a makes a round, right? Gets away from him. All of a sudden you can hear this baby. And they're like, oh, my God. And they look inside a window and it's a baby in a crib way down in the hallway of this house. How's this kid still alive, right? They pick up the baby. They wrap him up. They go out to get picked up by the helicopter. Helicopter drops the ladder. Actually, it drops, sorry, it drops one of those baskets that you put people in. So they actually had a baby basket that just happened to be in that hallway. Look, oh, look how lucky we are. They put the kid in the basket. Then they put the basket in one of those um, body carriers that you pull up into a helicopter during a rescue, right? And no sooner do they put the kid in that thing and it starts going up, this old man comes out of nowhere 
with a huge butcher knife and knocks down, I believe it's Hall. And he's looking back like, oh my God, who, you know, what the hell is this guy doing here, right? And he's kind of messed up. He's like, oh, <laughs> he's got this, he's not in any state to fight with the knife. And they kick the knife out of his hand. Now, while they're there, they do see a reflection up in the sky. It's a really weird thing. They, the stone points to Hall and he's like, hey man, look at that. And it's all of a sudden a super chrome reflection in the sky. I think that's to explain the flash of light that they saw, the other two soldiers saw, because there really is no reason for the flash of light. It's not some alien walking around the town in a full plasma suit, right? So now we see a sequence where Stone has got to call back to Vanderberg, kind of let him know what his recommendation is. And this is when he calls for what's called the 712. 712 means Nuke Piedmont New Mexico. Nuke it because this is horrible and we don't want it to spread. And then we see a bit of a conversation between folks at headquarters where they're basically like, why did you pick Piedmont and why did you pick this, uh, this location for something they're starting to call wildfire? Wildfire is the name of the facility that Stone was able to get financed for $19 million via the letter he wrote in 69 to deal with something that might be very dangerous that they pick up from space. Now, there's something I that's in this film, and it can't be wrong, but there may be some, some contingency. Now, I worked on a film project for probably half a year where I was doing a tremendous amount of research on nuclear bombs in general, and I... I found a number that was 1973 was the end of all above-ground testing for nuclear weapons. In this film, one of the guys says, well, the president's going to hold off on this 712 for at least uh, 24 to 48 hours until we get more information about what, what's going on here. And one of the guys said, yeah, you know, because he's worried about telling the, uh, his allies, you know, well, the Russians and everybody what the hell's going on, plus the allies. And then he, this guy quotes a 1963 ban on firing nuclear missiles above ground. So Flat Rock County, I don't even know if this stuff exists in Arizona, is where they put this wildfire place. And they're just sort of talking to each other, uh, playing stupid. One person plays stupid, the other one has all the answers so that we can get all the information out of the movie, right? And he's like, well, why would you guys pick this place? And he says, well, it, it has a 112-mile radius of no, no other residents, no other life in this area. So it's really good to put this facility just in case something goes wrong. You know, 112 miles, if you blew up a nuke, it wouldn't have to be a hundred megaton nuke. It could just be a couple kilotons and you would definitely destroy the facility and whatever the hell's inside, right? But this is when they do a great sequence change where they move to Dutton, the older guy, and Levitt, the woman, riding in a car down a dirt road towards this wildfire place. And she's smoking a cigarette and he's like, hey, you know, you better enjoy the last cigarette because that's going to be your last, you know, or enjoy that cigarette because it's going to be your last, you know. And she's like, man, there's nothing here. Look at this place. No one's even been here. Look at the road. It hasn't been crossed in, you know, years. And he goes, well, he goes, they spent $50,000 to basically clean up the trail. He goes, there was a ton of uh, heavy machinery building this place for two years. 
And she's kind of like, okay, well, you know, I believe you, man, but, you know. And they end up pulling up to this super tall gate. I mean, it must be, uh, it's just fence, but it's like 12 feet high or something. And you look in the distance and you can see tractors going back and forth, uh, basically growing crops, right? And they open the door and they pull in. She's like, man, that's, that's crazy. It looks legit. He's like, yeah, you know, he goes, it's legit, man. He goes, there's just something else here. And it shows up and it's the U.S. Uh, Department of Agricultural Building. That's what the sign says on the outside. It's like a little ranch house out there, pretty small. But they go down the hallway and the hallway uh, has all these doors, you know, they're all labeled janitor, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they have to ask a little coded question at the front door, which is pretty cool. And they go inside uh, this supply uh, room. And it's just all kinds of like gardening tools and stuff in there. And all of a sudden, you know, he closes the, Dutton's closed the door. He's been there before, I guess. I mean, he's been at least to the facility. He hasn't gone down inside, but he knows this one sequence, which is kind of interesting. They play it off like he knows, but when he gets inside, you realize no one's been in there before like this because the place just really came online, you know. And he pulls on something in the room, you know, like a shovel or something, and boom, it starts going down. It's very much like the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland where the ceiling starts going up, but you're going down. At Disneyland, it's an optical illusion because they're moving the ceiling up and moving you down to the next floor, but it makes it seem like it's twice as intense as it is. And And... Levitt is not surprised about anything. She's an ultra brilliant human being. So she's like, oh, that's cute. You know, that's funny. But when they walk into this ranch, there's something really important that occurs. There is a um, construction sign, one of those V construction signs. And they don't really use these anymore. But back in the 70s, it was a, a pretty common site. And they have these little lamps on top of the construction site. Those little round lamps looks like could fit in a car, you know. And they're red and they're blinking. And she walks by and she sees it and she covers up her eyes. She's like, oh, my God. And he's like, oh, you got something wrong with red lights? And she goes, uh, yeah, she goes, I don't like red lights. It reminds, my, reminds me of my ears in a Bardello. Just a little joke. And she goes inside. So she's got something weird with flashing red lights. It's a brilliant plot mechanism that Michael Crichton came up with. Now, based on the size of the house, this is where Trumbull's team comes in. And it starts to um, show this little graphic of their elevator going down from the main house. I swore when I first watched it, it said 300 feet, but it's down there to level one. A little digression, you know, there's a rumor that there's a base underneath the uh, Colorado airport. I can report to you personally that uh, there's at least 27 stories below that place, and you can go and assist those low, those people in those locations and the elevator basically you get inside and you can only get to like three that's the maximum that a normal human being can get if you're not military with clearance but the buttons continue going down to like 27 so there's a base underneath that airport trust me now stone and hall they just came in from the city from the uh, piedmont town it's a little town 68 people whatever you want to call that and so they've got to they've got to decam- decontaminate right And so they come into this stainless steel room. And this is where I must say what you're about to see in terms of a facility construction uh, 
and you can put Star Trek sets up against this. You can put 2001 sets up against this. It's its own unique thing, but man, oh man, did they build a, a lot of stainless steel, or I should say polished steel rooms. Uh, they spent some dough on this set. Now, I think they've, I'll, I'll mention this towards the end, but there's a reuse of the set with different colors at one point. But so Stone and Hall walk into the room and they have this, like there's this box right there in the middle of the room. It's all stainless steel. And he says, okay, plug in. And their suits have this, cord off of it and they jack into this thing and it electrifies them and so you hear this brrr, and they just like covered in plasma now it's only hitting the outside of their suit so what's cool about that is they're insinuating the suit is a Faraday suit so it's just zapping everything on the outside with electricity brilliant idea to kill a germ if nothing else seeing this film would give you some ad hoc theory on if you're ever exposed to anything in the world and you don't know what it is, this movie will give you step-by-step -step instructions. If you could build the equipment to do this or get a, access to it, you would be able to scientifically figure out what they're trying to do in this facility. And it's outlined pretty, pretty uh, clearly in the movie, too. So then it flips back to Dutton and Levitt, and they have to identify themselves to get inside. Stone is so powerful in this facility because he's the one that had it commissioned. He can just get Hall in there in two seconds. No big deal. But they have another stainless steel box, different room, stainless steel room. And Dutton tells Levitt, OK, get up here and put your palms on this print. And this is 1971, right? So they have to tell the audience what this thing is. Today, you do it on your phone just to open it up, put your thumb on it, right? She puts her hands on it. She goes, oh, I know what this is. Like 10,000 scan lines in my hand. And he's like, how did you know that? And, you know, Dutton's doing it too. And she goes, I have a long criminal record. And he goes, well, he says, you better be careful because uh, the computer has a long memory too, you know. They're just joking around. They look up to this light and it turns green. They're allowed in. Doors open. They're on level one. And level one is this giant Taurus it's uh, every floor is like a torus, which is a donut, right? But very, uh, you could almost envision it like some uh, Star Trek hallway in an Enterprise uh, disc. But the, the actual walls are a little bit curved, which I have to say, when we were at Electronic Arts, um, just after I left and then I came back and made him one of my clients, they tried that portal uh, shape on doors just to make it look stylized because they basically bought a fucking hospital and stuffed us all in there. We had this cool facility in San Mateo, which was just all tricked out and nice. And then they built new buildings to move us in. But everybody was tripping. As they turned the corner, they didn't realize that down below was this little <laughs> slit to make it look like a portal door. And they let that sit about a year. And with injuries and people tripping, they ended up pulling them all out. So note to you, if you ever decide to put in round walls in your house, but this place is amazing looking. Right away, they join Hall and Stone, and they immediately go into this room. It's in the center of the Taurus. And it's just tons of sci-fi buttons and lights, and it's uh, very, very well done. And there's one guy sitting at a desk, and he's got one of those printers that's sort of at every newspaper in the world at the time, and just gets a feed and prints it out. And it's supposed to ring a bell and let 
let the guy know, hey, there's a new message, you need to read it, and then you'll pass it out to whoever the messages are for. So it's basically paper email, you know. And Stone's looking for a message from Vanderbilt. He's like, you know, we, sh- we should have a message by now from Vanderbilt. What's going on? He's like, no, I haven't seen any messages. And the guy's pretty cocky about how perfect his computers are. And he goes, when the bell rings, I get a message and I give it to you. And he's like, all right, whatever. No messages yet. So they leave that room and they go find their own room. And they sit down. This is when Stone starts explaining things a little bit. So Stone and the team get to this really interesting sequence, and it's about the nuclear bomb that's in the basement. Stone pulls out two keys on a chain, like a dog tag chain. Each one of them has its own chain. And he says, this is the silver one, this is the red one. Hall, you're the odd man out. Remember I told you, you didn't read your material, but we're going to tell you what this is. This key arms the nuclear bomb. If there is a problem, the central computer is the one that actually sets off the self-destruct sequence. If you, the odd man out, decide that this is not really an ultimate threat, you can go to any one of the stations on all five levels, and you put the red key in, and you just turn it, and it turns off the nuke. And then we go to whatever protocol after that, right? And he's like, what the hell is this odd man out thing? And that's when Levitt, who read her documentation, goes and grabs a little manual and lays out the page and gives it to Hall and says, here it is, the odd man hypothesis. And it's basically that a single male is, uh, has been determined through experimentation to be one of the most level-headed type guys to determine whether or not this sort of thing should ever occur or not occur. Because you're not saving your kid, you're not saving your wife, you're thinking clearly. You're thinking about the overall picture. It's a very cool idea. And so Hall takes this pretty serious. He puts the red key around his neck and he's like, why do I, you know, I, I, okay, I'll take it, you know. But he's kind of like, gosh, that's a hell of a responsibility, man. It's very nice writing. Now, this is when Stone goes up to a monitor, which is a big flat screen. Mm-hmm. There are some tube monitors in there, but they try to make them look as flat as possible. They're like old Trinitrons or something. And this is where Trumbull's team, which has another guy named James Short that worked on this. I want to give him credit too, of course. He brings up a combination of 2D and 3D images. He explains that if you ever get lost in this place, there's a terminal you can go to to always find out where you are. Very Star Trek-y, right? Now, Star Trek's already aired in first three seasons in the 60s, but it wasn't terribly emphasized until Star Trek Next Generation that the same type of computer was in the hallway, and you can always find out where you are by looking at one of the subway maps, basically, right? But there is a 3D, it was a bunch of 2D images, and if you pay attention, they're kind of jiggling a little bit in the shots because Trumbull is cutting them together, and they're basically hand uh, backlighting these things and then filming them in step animation, uh, like you might do clay claymation but it's obviously a flat plane so there's all the blinking and everything that's going on is all done by hand it's just purely you know shuttering every frame but that's not the impressive part the impressive part is the second sequence where stone pulls up a three-dimensional rotating model of this facility and it i'm sitting there looking at this trying to figure out how they did it because 3D software in 71 was, I think, non-existent. They didn't start doing 
three-dimensional projection until nuclear power plants were trying to find out where electrons might be leaking out of a core. And then that went into the private sector of Hollywood and they started doing graphics for like logos and things. And then of course we got Tron in 1982 embedding it into a film. But this rotating graphic is breathtaking for the times, man. And he's basically saying, look, there's five levels to this facility. Each level requires a additional level of decontamination of each person who's allowed to be on those levels. So level five, you are super clean as a human being. There's all kinds of really cool things we're going to go through here. It's to make sure that the human body doesn't bring anything down that might be confused for the Andromeda strain, right? And that's when he says it's going to take 16 hours for them to get down to the bottom floor. Now, luckily, between, I think, four and five, they get a six-hour sleep layover before they get down to the bottom level. But on the top-down version of the graphics, which are just basically black gels with the gel missing and they project a color through it, right? Their uh, first initials are basically blinking wherever, whatever room they're standing in. As they move around, that little initial moves around the screen. And what's kind of funny about that is, what if you have two people with the same initial? It was just fortunate. They all had different names. But what he does is he shows that the baby and the old man are coming down a central column that's in the center of the building. It's this little red dot that's going down to the holding facility in five. And they end up showing a live camera of the old man and the baby uh, going down this circular elevator. No one's with them. They're just down there. And so it's time to leave the red level one. Now, each time they leave that level, it's not each time. They do it twice so you can see it happening. They're wearing a jersey. I mean, they're wearing, sorry, not jersey. They're wearing kind of scrubs that are the color of that level. So you're wearing red and you're on level one red. And so they show this uh, uh, empty one going down this uh, cylinder and it, woof, it, it basically blows up like flash paper. Now to get to level two, everyone has to strip down naked. They let uh, Ruth go off in her own female area. Gosh, just think of what happened today. So these three guys go in buck naked and they do a real interesting sequence because they need to have a conversation and go through the first decontamination process naked. But they don't want to show like three grown guys naked with different varying bodies because one guy's super fit and he just keeps getting older and older down to Dutton. And so they run this really cool filter on their bodies to really make them look like globular light. And they're just talking about stuff. And the voice that comes over the uh, intercom says, okay, you're about to be exposed to long wave radiation. Uh, then we see, we switch over to Ruth because the three guys get hit. Ruth is walking through like ankle deep water and she's walking out. And of course they get dressed up in the next level, which is an orangey kind of uh, outfit. Looks exactly like the red one. And that's when, you know, Hall talks about, he goes, oh, you know, the taxpayers are going to love it that we've been burning up our clothes on all the levels, which is hilarious. $19 million facility. He's worried about the clothes. And that's when Stone goes, well, I actually made a paper. And Dutton's like, man, it feels like cloth. He goes, no, it's, it's paper, man. Fully recyclable or not that expensive. In level two, they have a sequence where they sit you down on a chair. 
And what's really cool, they have limited graphics in 71, and so they show X's on the screen that basically show a human form. And the monitor, especially for Hall, says, okay, I want you to, uh, you're supposed to position your body on the chair to cover up all these, uh, all the positions on the screen. And so he stretches himself out until all the X's go away. It's really cool. I mean, it would totally work today, right? And then they make him state his name and they go through some sequences. Ruth is asked whether or not she's allergic to anything. And she says ragweed pollen. And the computer doesn't understand what she's saying initially. So she just gets more and more frustrated. Before Hall leaves the room, the, there's the monitor he's been looking at the whole time starts flashing all these crazy colors, which now when you look back, maybe Ruth would have passed out if she'd seen these colors. But it wasn't red. And it's basically to distract you while this robot's coming down and zips his arm with a shot. So he's like, and he's like, oh man, what the hell was that, you know? And so then they burn the orange clothing. So now they're going down to level three. Level three starts out with what they call the Xenon 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 scanner. What's cool about this is that uh, Hall walks into the room and he's naked, and he's waist up, you know, and he's pretty fit. Hall's a young guy, and there's this super cool, almost looks like a fencing helmet off to the side. It actually probably is a fencing helmet when you see how it operates. The front kind of swings out, but they have outfitted this thing with jewel like like diamonds or something and it's just super shiny and cool and the voice is saying okay put this on he puts it on and she says you know hold your arms out you're about to be hit with this xenon scanner that's going to decontaminate your epidermis basically right and you see this huge zap and it's going on for a while it's like electricity and then they pull off this dude and he is he had a hairy chest when it started and now he's just covered in a powder like a really light powder. It's kind of grayish powder. And all of his chest hair is gone. And it tells him, you know, go ahead and step over here and we're going to rinse you off. And this is when they, re- they they get back together and Stone says, I want you all to sleep for six hours. It's just mandatory to rest from all of this pulverizing from all these machines and stuff. And he says, we'll meet in the cafeteria tomorrow. And this is when you get a montage And the montage is uh, very tastefully done. It goes back to that kind of comic book slit look where they show uh, one of the doctors and it's, it's what they're thinking about. And it's, I'll let you see it because it's really cool. Everyone's thinking of a different collection of facts that they have seen the last two days or life events that would, um, relate to what's going on and love it. The Ruth, Ruth, she ends up thinking about this Russian scientist who was very uh, into the threat of potentially grabbing something from space and bringing it down to Earth. Problem is he's Russian and he can't get to the United States because he couldn't get a, a grant. And this begins day three. And they start off the sequence in Hall's room. And this woman keeps telling him what to do and he's finally like, Man, you know, um, he's basically starting to get turned on by the voice. And so he goes up to the intercom and he pushes a button and she goes, you know, basically, what can I do for you? He basically says, give me your name. And nothing happens. And so then he's starting to put his you know, little outfit on and 
get tidied up. He always checks his key and his key wasn't there on his chest. He's like, oh my God, and he realizes it flew around his back while he was asleep. So he gets the keys. Very serious about the key. It's kind of cool. Today, they would probably put some jackass in there who wouldn't take it seriously. And that would be the bad plot mechanism. They don't do that in this movie. It's good. But then he gets a call from a guy who's alive, you know, and he says, hey, uh, I'm from the, you know, intercommunication system. We really appreciate if you take this more seriously. And Hall's just like, hey, man, he goes, that woman's voice is luscious. <laughs> and he goes, uh, that woman's voice belongs to this woman who's 63 years old who lives in a completely different state. And she's basically gets paid to stay home and create these messages. So relax, dude. So Hall goes out to the cafeteria, and there's an interesting Matrix thing here. He goes out to the cafeteria, and he realizes it's not much of a cafeteria. Because they're at level three, they might even be at level four now, they don't really keep telling you, because they're soon about to be in level five. He realizes that you can't just have food there, because it's got all kinds of bacteria and contaminants. And so <laughs> he comes in the room, and Ruth has got this glass of what look, almost looks like blood, and she's like, here... Uh, drink this. Here's your uh, hemlock. Have a drink. And he says, oh, this is not your blood, you know, because they're kind of at odds with each other. A little tension there, but that's the last moment there's any tension. And he starts talking to Stone. He's like, well, this, what the hell is this, man? He says, well, you're going to be on this protein thing. It's really the pace that was in Matrix, right? It basically, you can't have, and they talk about not having any sugar at this level because it's just, it's a contaminant. But when he drank the juice, uh, he said, oh, it tastes like orange juice. And Stone says, oh, yeah, this is what NASA developed for the astronauts. And at this point, we're still going to the moon, technically, uh, in, on paper, right, in 71. There's another year of missions to get 16 and 17 out the door. But sugar would be in the drink that is sweet, you know, and it's not in the, it can't be on that level. So they kind of had a continuity issue there. Or they didn't bring it up, which is interesting because they are bringing everything up, right? But at this point, Stone basically breaks down the three things that um, they need to isolate with this mechanism, which is whether or not there's anything really there. And then generally, what is it made out of? And then how to contain it and kill it. And this is when Dutton, you know, leans over who's been teaching this sort of discipline about, hey, you know, if we, if we discover extraterrestrial life, they actually cut off to a past flashback with Dutton teaching. And he's making the case that, hey, you know, when we find extraterrestrial life, it might be no bigger than a bacteria. So we got to be careful. It still could be brilliant and smart. That's one of the interesting things about this film. You know, who knows if that's possible, but it gets you to ask the question, of what is intelligent life and how tiny could it be? So after Stone is kind of like, hey, we're just going to find this thing, isolate it, kill it. Dutton's like, hey, man, you know, let's let's go a little slow on that killing part until we figure out what the hell we're dealing with, right? Now, they have to go into their next level here. And Stone hands them all a suppository, which obviously has to be inserted uh, in the old uh, hoo-ha well, the, uh, the back door, right? And so uh, Ruth was looking at this thing going, oh my God, you know, I've been prodded, I've been zapped, I've been all this thing, and now I can't even have a cigarette and I got this thing, you know? And he's like, you know, look, you just got to do it because we haven't taken care of the 
the gastral tract, and this is going to sterilize your insides, okay? Sorry. And so they walk off, and she makes a joke about it being a cigarette. But now we're on the fifth level, and all kinds of stuff starts happening. They don't waste any time in this film getting down to the science of what the hell's going on. And that's what this film gets really interesting. Because instead of like frilly, stupid stuff or just pure action, pure thriller, where like, you know, some blob comes down the hallway killing everybody, they don't do anything like that. They keep it super scientific. If you're a science fiction buff and drama strain is pound for pound, one of the most scientific movies I've ever seen. And they make it interesting. But they show this room, and here's what's interesting. There's a bit of a uh, homage to uh, well, THX, which is coming out the same exact year. And it, it's what they call, uh, it's the same mechanism that Robert Duvall was using, these uh, extra hands, you know. So you got this mechanical hand on the outside, it goes up to this actuated other hand inside of a sterile room. And so you see Stone, he's just kicking ass and taking names. He's got the satellite in there and he's popping the door off now and it's all in a sterile room. And it's just kind of some folded material in there, nothing fancy, but it's made out of like a grate. It's actually a pretty strong catcher's mitt inside this thing. And they say, okay, how should we start? And he said, well, let's test, let's test how it might be transmitted. And they've got this other hand that goes up and grabs, they have a whole wall of cages with different animals in it. And they're all sealed inside the cage. So they're not exposed to the air of the room, but they're windows so they can see what animals in there. They grab a rat and they pull it down and they put it down right next to the satellite. It's all this well-lit stainless steel room stuff and they end up using this arm and they open up the door and they pull up the glass. And so the rat's still in the cage, but he, now he's exposed to the air. And they must have gassed these animals to fall asleep or something because the animal's just like, oh, and he starts just lying down and boom, he's out cold. And you're like, okay, it's airborne. It's an airborne thing, and it's still super active. Look how fast that rat died. So in pharmaceuticals, that's how they do it. They start with rats. And then they move up to different species of monkeys. Now, I think it's a little rhesus monkey is the biggest animal they've got in this movie. So they move to the monkey. And they pull the monkey down. It's this cute little baby monkey. It's, it's a little brutal for your mind if you're totally into the fiction. I'm sure they didn't hurt these animals. By that time, they weren't doing that in Hollywood, at least in America. And they slid it up, and sure, that, that monkey just starts rattling, and he just goes to sleep. Boom. But in the movie, he's dying, right? And they're like, wow. It's getting closer to the genome of a, of a human being in the science that we are taught in school, right? Now, Hall is off with Dutton. And Hall's like, how am I going to see my patients? How am I going to touch them if they're contaminated? And this is where he says, uh, well, have you ever worked in a glove room? And he says, no, but I know what they are. And he says, well, I think that's what he says. He says, well, we got something like that, except you get inside of it. And he opens this door and gets them in this new laboratory. It it's essentially has two portal uh, round rectangle doors. And you open up the door and inside is this accordion of plastic and a bodysuit. And so you grab the rail up above and you jump inside the bodysuit and you have armholes and hands and everything. And there's the patients, the baby and the old man, who at this point are out cold. The baby's not crying right now. 
So Dutton leaves Hall in the room. He takes off. And what's interesting is a woman in this room. And she is Dr. Karen Anson. And this is played by uh, a black woman by the name of uh, Paula Kelly. And she's this exotic looking creature. And she's a scientist as well. She's like a technician that, that helps him with whatever he needs. And I'm looking at this woman. I thought, man, she looks so familiar to me. Don't know why. And it wasn't until I looked her up that I found out that she was in Soylent Green two years later. This woman's career had just started in like 68. And by 71, she was in two, well, by 73, she was in two cult classic movies. Uh, she lived uh, to be like 77, passed away in 2020. But she is, uh, she's got some of the more hefty dialogue in this film in terms of scientific jo- jargon she has to speak. But she gets Hall, you know, acclimated to the room and how it works and shows him how to get into this, this uh, sleeve thing. So he asks her, you know, have you done this suits before? And she says, not really. You know, she goes, they've, they've been running tons of simulations down here. It's like been a game for the last year. And it's sort of interesting. You think about that in real life, you know. Most certainly these things have been drilled for whatever facilities they have, right? So both of them hop in and they start, uh, Hall goes over to the old man because you're either in the sleeve on the left or in the sleeve on the right. And you can kind of get to both sides, but it's a little cumbersome because it has a, has a length to it, right? And the whole suit and the accordion is held by a wire that's above you so that you don't uh, get it all tangled up. But the baby starts crying. And the old man's kind of, you know, he's kind of, you know, and he's trying to drill the old man. Hey, what happened? What happened? What happened? And the guy's like, where the hell am I? And he's like, you're in a, you're in a laboratory in, you know, Arizona. You've been brought here. We need to find out what happened. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm a doctor. And he looks at him and they don't want to swear in the movie, which is kind of interesting. He says, bull, you know, and he's like, oh gosh. So, uh, Anson Dr. Anson, she is, I don't know, she's a, I think she's a doctor, yeah. She is a picking up the kid and kind of trying to take care of him. They're not feeding him yet because they don't want to disturb the, the condition of the patients at this point. But the old man kind of goes back to sleep. So they cut over to Dutton. Dutton isn't messing around. So Stone and Levitz are trying to find the particle inside the satellite, and Dutton is in a different facility with one of the... Um, rats that he has pulled down on a table and that's alive and they have the dead rat in that room and they have a tube between the two boxes which are like uh you know plastic sealed boxes with the cage around it and so they want to see hey is it airborne is it it still active right so they open this door and sure enough the dead rat kills the other rat this is okay now we got to find how big the thing is how big is this molecule and they have this really cool mechanism. I don't know if these things really exist, but it looks like a Ferris wheel, a little tiny Ferris wheel. And it has different level filters in it. And so they go to like submicron, one one hundredth of a micron, and they bring down a new rat that's alive and they hook up the tube and then they filter the air through this thing. So from the dead rat to the live rat, it's only going to pass through and kill the live rat if it's... Uh, one hundredth of a micron or smaller, and he doesn't die. He's like, okay, let's go up to one micron. And you see it rotate, tink, and they do it again. You hear the air go, 
where it pushes through and the rat's still alive. He's like, well, damn, it's a pretty big particle. So he got up to two microns. Boom, the rat dies. So immediately Dutton calls Stone and Levitt. Hey, we got to fix on how big it is. It's two microns. So then Levitt turns to Stone and goes, man, if it's two microns, it should be showing up. We should be able to see this thing inside the satellite, right? Well, it's kind of a long sequence, but it's very well done. The, uh, they have a camera on, on these robot arms, and they're looking inside, and they're zooming up at different magnifications, and they can't really find anything. And Levitz is starting to get really frustrated with Stone, because Stone is just examining the outer casing of the satellite, and she's like, why the hell would it be there? Why aren't we going straight to the center? Because we want to find this thing. There's, the clock is ticking. What are you doing? And he's just like, buy the book. You know, we're going to do standard stuff, right? And she's like, man, you know, everything's going to go boom if you don't find this thing. And what she's talking about is the nuke, right? It's, you have to, I've, I had to watch it a couple of times to realize what she was referencing. Sometimes I'm slow. But eventually they get to the center of this uh, satellite. And it's like a mesh. It's like a mesh of steel. It looks like carpet or something, uh, but it's not. It's made of metal. And they end up finding this little stone jammed into the mesh. Like it hit it hard, right? It's dented it and knocked a hole in it, but the rock is kind of stuck in there. It's a little tiny rock. So they zoom into it, and it looks like a little lava rock, like a little iron stone, right? But they start looking closer, and it has like little tiny specks of green on it. And they're like, is that it? And she's like, what do you think that green stuff is? And he's like, it's just paint. Wherever it came in, it hit something and it has paint on it. Now, what's crazy about the paint is they never explain that in order to have his theory be true, there'd have to be green paint on the vehicle, especially during the gathering process. And it would have had to hit the green. And I don't know any green paint on a rocket in that time frame whatsoever. But they just let it go by because he's minimalizing her sort of knee-jerk reaction to think they found something, because he's by the book. But eventually, they keep zooming into this thing, and they zoom into the green, finally, and it's got a really wild bubble texture. It almost looks like a goo that has bubbles in it. And they zoom into it and zoom into it, and it's just there, and he's like, well, that's really weird. And Stone looks away, and Levin's still looking at the camera, and this thing jiggles. It moves. And he, she's like, oh, my God, stone. And he goes, what, did you see something? She's like, ah, nah, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm operating on six hours of sleep. I probably just didn't see anything. And uh, sure enough, about 30 seconds later, both of them are looking at it, and it does it again. Oh, wow, they found it. Meanwhile, Dutton, now that he knows how big it is, he is running another experiment to see how it's ingested into the, to the body. So they do it on a rhesus. And it's, it's a really fast sequence. It's really cool. They have, the Trumbull's group came up with this, uh, this uh, picture of a human form, and basically being the Reese's, and they expose it, and it dies. And they supposedly have this magic equipment that knows exactly where the particle went inside the, the body of the monkey. And he runs back the simulation, and they find out very quickly it's hitting the lungs. It blows up from the lungs and kills you. And they're all kind of like, oh, my God, that's not good news. You know, it's airborne, breathable, meaning it could really spread across the land if it gets exposed to the population, right? So at this point, 
They go back to Stone and Levitt. They've now figured out that it grows. And so they, he comes in with his crazy tiny tweezers. And it's just, you have to believe this is happening, right? He grabs the green and moves it into a Petri dish and then closes the door. And it gets sent off to be cultured. At this point, we go back to Anson Hall, who are taking care of the baby and the old man. The old man starts loosening up a little bit. And he's kind of grimacing a little bit. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And he says, oh, I got a... I got a hole in my stomach, you know? And he's like, you got an ulcer? And he's like, sure do, man. And he's like, I had it for like a couple of years. And he goes, well, what do you do? What do you take to get this ulcer to calm down? He says, uh, he says, I take, I drink the squeeze. And they quickly run it on a computer. And I think Anson at that point had crawled back into the, the main area. She ran it on the computer and it comes up on a monitor. And it basically is a slang term for sterno. So this dude's been drinking Sterno to help his his gut. And the guy's, of course, Hall's like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me, man. And they find out, he talks about the town, and he says, what happened at the town? He, first, he doesn't want to talk about it, and then uh, Hall kind of guilts him, basically saying, look, it'll it'll go down as Piedmont is the place this place, this whole thing started. It'll be because you guys are bad people. And he's like, man, we're good people, man. And so he finally says, look, he says, what what?" What happened in the town, man? He goes, it looks like everybody went crazy. Why is this one guy dressed up really weird? And why did this other stuff happen? He's like, everybody went crazy. He goes, nobody was weird until this thing hit. And then a few people went nuts at the last second before they died. So they all take a break and they all come to the center room. And this is when uh, they realize they haven't had any communication from Vandenberg. And they're like, we should have some directives for Vandenberg. Why has there been no communication? And Dutton's like, man, I think we're in a, we're in a incommunicato. Like they've cut us off. They don't want us to know anything. And that's when they run this little sequence where they do the voiceover from the flash forward in uh, April later that year. And they run this uh, really funny little sequence where it basically said that during one of the previous reports, before the doctors all arrived at this at this wildfire facility, there was a report that came in, and when the guy ripped the paper out of the printer, a little piece of paper got caught between the bell and the little rocker arm that hits the bell. And so they were continuing, uh, these, these two tech guys in that center room of level one, kept examining the machine to see what was wrong with it, because they get in phone calls saying, we sent you messages, why haven't you replied? And he's like, we haven't got any messages, man. So looking at all the circuit boards and they realized that it was a piece of paper stuck in the bell. So the whole time Vanderbilt's been trying to communicate with them, they're not getting the messages. So the communication between Vanderbilt and the lab rekindles and they find out that 712 hasn't been done yet. And so Stone is totally pissed off about this. Meanwhile, they sent the rocket or sorry, the jet back out to do another uh, pass on this location and the pilot, who is filmed very sterile, very straight on, and he's not moving at all. In fact, in the first sequences, uh, they, I think they kind of had a bit of um, uh, maybe one of the areas where the, the pilot was actually not moving. You kind of thought he was dead or something. And I think it's because they filmed this once in one day and forgot to direct the pilot to move around a little bit more when he was doing the photographs. But they cut back to this guy, same dude in the same jet, Different, different mission, three days later. 
And he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he starts looking like he's not doing well, and the mask, the seal on his mask, starts to turn to dust and starts to just kind of, you know, float down to his face. And they cut to the headquarters where he's talking to headquarters, this pilot, and he's saying, oh, man, I don't feel very well. He's like, what are you looking at, you know? And all of a sudden, poof, the plane crashes. The jet crashes, I should say. Now, this is unbeknownst to the laboratory yet because they haven't had a chance to investigate anything. But they cut back to the laboratory and they realize that the rock itself is completely normal. Nothing weird about the rock that was embedded in that little mesh. And so they're like, oh, woof, you know. Meanwhile, you know, they've seen it move already and they haven't isolated that just yet. So they run a material scan on the... So they run a scan on this green stuff and there's always these really cool reports coming out from the computer. And essentially... They list every element that creates life, every chemical reaction that creates life, including amino acids. And it's coming up zero on everything, all the way down to no amino acids. And this is where all three of them, or all four of them, excuse me, are standing in a room. And, you know, Dutton's like, well, that's impossible. You know, nothing could be alive without amino acids. It's got to have a chemical reaction in order to be alive. It just has to. It has to have metabolism of some sort, some factory inside of it to move, right? Now, they flash forward, and they, they basically assign Levitz, Levitt to uh, go off and look at cultures that have been cultured and exposed to different, uh, different things, lights, chemicals, different atmospheres. And what they're looking for is which one of these Petri dishes with the growth in it that's being cultured is coming back with the least amount of growth. So they can find out if you expose it to this, it doesn't grow that much. And this is where that little problem she has with seeing flashing red lights becomes ultra brilliant. It's not the last time we're going to see it. But she's looking at the reports and she's super tired, right? She already indicated that in the previous scene. When she thought she saw it, when she did see, but she wanted to back out because she's trying to be by the book. And she's looking at these reports and what they've done is because they don't have real graphics like we have today, they're using alphanumeric characters to illustrate everything in this entire film other than the gels that, that Trumbull and Short made. And so it's showing a Petri dish out of characters, and then it's basically showing uh, numbers inside this thing to show how much growth at that particular pixel in, in the tray it grew. And a bunch of them are coming back, you know, with lots of growth. But one finally rotates into view, and it's got no growth. And she's looking right at it. And the problem is, is that there's a warning message above that graphic saying no growth, no growth, no growth, and it's in red. So Levitt goes into a trance. Something about staring at blinking red throws her into a trance. And she, uh, and eventually the computer automates the next uh, Petri dish in the readout, and she comes back to life, and she doesn't remember seeing it. And so they had the evidence of what made that thing not grow, but she missed it. But she kind of knows that she just went into that state, so she's like, oh, crap. I told uh, Stone I was going to be done already with, these, uh, with the analyzing of this. Now, what's funny about this is it's a computer, right? And so the computer should have just immediately advanced to the one that had no growth, because that's what you're looking for. You filter your results, right? You put a where on that SQL clause. Now, it, the sequence where... Um, the doctors actually met and this whole thing came together. They realized they need some more sleep 
because everybody's starting to just get dysfunctional. And Stone orders everybody to do six hours of sleep for every 24 hours they're awake. And Dutton's like, man, you know, no argument for me. And then they say, shouldn't we file for a code name? And this is a very interesting little process. They have one of those little printers that's in the central room on level four, uh, level one, which is where the message is supposed to be sent down to their little printer on level five. And they type this thing in and it's a central computer naming what this thing is. And so at that point, the actual title of the movie comes out in the computer and it basically says, we're calling this thing the Andromeda strain. And it's Andromeda because it's a it's an interstellar body, and this is from outer space, and so why not, right? So that's where we get Andromeda strain naming from the actual central computer. So at this point, I'm going to start revealing what Andromeda strain is. So if you want to pause and go see the film again or see it for the first time, now would be a good time. So we cut to Stone, apparently after their six hours of sleep, and he is got some of this green stuff that's grown. And now he is uh, making these little tiny slices of it, the thinnest possible slice he can make of it because he wants to put it in an electron microscope. Now, I study electron microscopes because of this show, because of uh, various elements that fall out of the sky, their nanometer size. And what I found out was a couple interesting things. And this is actually a Royal Raymond Rife episode as well. That's actually where I did the, the deep dive on them electron microscope. Apparently with electron microscope, you have to, you lose the animation of what it is you're looking at. So the reason why Royal Raymond Rife was so special, creating 50,000 power zoom microscopes in 1931 to watch Bacillus typhosis, this particular species of cancer, eating a cell at a submicron level on camera with full contrast mapping, which meant he could see its three-dimensional composition. All those videos are in my Royal Raymond Rife episode. If you haven't seen that episode, you owe it to humanity to watch that, right? Now, people say they're building Royal Raymond Rife uh, equipment. I don't think they know what they're doing because it doesn't really work. I have a friend's uh, father who died, and he tried to use the modern-day version of this, and it just was hokey as hell, right? Their their souls are in the right place. I just don't think we have the machine figured out at this point. And Royal Raymond Rife and his uh, builder tried to obfuscate everything because they couldn't patent it. And so they tried to hide it. So I don't know if we even have the mechanics, uh, the schematics for that. And this is before printed circuit boards and all that stuff. Anywho, they're making this super thin slice. And what technically should happen is they treat it with a chemical, let it dry out, and they put it in an electron microscope. And they can take a look at the dead carcass of whatever they're checking out, which ends the cause and effect model of looking at small things. Everything should be looked at with high power microscopes so you can see it move, so you know its characteristics, right? But in this movie, they, they don't do that. So he slices this super thin slice and he puts it on this little capsule and he sticks it inside electron microscope. It sounds like a Willy Wonka machine when it turns on. It's kind of funny. It's all bubbly and strange. I don't know if they make those noises in real life. The, the machine looks real. I've seen the old style ones, uh, this is a 1970s version of the machine. But they get a beat on this thing, meaning a nice image of it, and it's, it's a crystal. It's this cool, you're going to see it in the video, but it's this cool crystal. About that time, Levitt, who is 
almost passed out looking at the results, comes in and she's looking at it. And she goes, oh, my God, there it is, gentlemen. And she had already theorized in a previous uh, experience that crystals are basically the most fundamental form of life. And I think that's probably extremely true in most cases. Because she walks up to the image and she says, crystals are great because all of these compartments that crystals create are perfect for isolating chemicals to have reactions. And so it doesn't, it isn't, it isn't personally made of those things, but it can isolate the chemicals that when the reaction happens, it's literally forced to grow out of sheer mathematics, right? And they keep looking at this thing and it starts, you know, changing and, and, and morphing into something different. And they're like, oh my God. And she is asked about the results that she found. And what's interesting about it, they can't, she can't say she saw the one with zero growth because she doesn't remember it, but she does have two examples of the least amount of growth with something in it and the one with the most amount of growth. And the one with most amount of growth grew best in a carbon-hydrogen atmosphere, like CO2. And so they take a split second to think about it, and they said, oh, my God, if we detonate the 712 directive over Piedmont, New Mexico, it's going to absolutely blast this crystal and feed it with everything that it needs to multiply. Nuking Piedmont is the worst thing on planet Earth. But just in a scene earlier, Stone is like throwing down with uh, Dr. Roberts, who's back at Vandenberg, get the damn 712 going. And so they push the president real hard. And so Stone gets back on the phone with Roberts and it's one camera over here and the White House liaison with the president here. And he's like, you got to call that thing off right away. And they're like, what do you mean? We just got the president to, to go for it. And he said, this thing will utterly blow up. It's a crystalline structure and it runs off of carbon and hydrogen. And Roberts is like, uh-oh. And so he tells the other guy, hey, man, you got to tell him to stop. And so the guy's like, ah, damn it. And he's like, uh, well, the president will be happy that he's uh, made the original. His original decision was the right one. And that's when Levitt lets out a little zing. And she says, yeah, tell him uh, thanks for his uh, his great scientific deduction. <laughs> Basically, I mean, he didn't know anything about this. He didn't make the right decision. He just made a decision for political reasons. So they don't say that they fed this thing anything new because the crystal structure is still up on the screen and it reduces down to, I believe, uh, Hall and Stone in the room. Dutton goes back to run more experiments. Levitz goes back to look at her Petri dish results because she knows she missed some. And this thing starts going like crazy. It starts overloading the camera looking at it, right? And all of a sudden the computer gives a 601 error. And I would say this is the 1971 equivalent of the blue screen of death. The memory in the central computer overloaded, trying to track what the hell was going on inside this uh, optical, right? Which is funny. You know, I, I, I would have loved for them to drop some memory allocation for 1971. It would have been cool. if It has 10 megs in it. What the hell, you know? Or 10K. Anyway, it overloaded. Now, this is when the plot goes to the next level. When the movie itself goes boom, and now we're going to be on the third act for damn sure. Remember the problem with the pilot. His mask melted, right? Well, the brass went out and looked at that jet, 
And there's a few continuity issues with this. Uh, it could be inferred as to why this happened, but they go out and they they have pieces and parts of the jet out there in the desert. And uh, they're saying basically his rubber, all the rubber melted. That's what he said. You know, the rubber's melted. And this technician guy's out there and he goes, well, it's, there's no rubber in this vehicle. It's all this weird organic plastic that we created, but it acts as the seals for everything that's in this jet. And a guy walks over to the pilot's seat, which, you know, this thing crashed into the de- uh, desert floor. So somehow the pilot, you know, the cockpit's still there. And they reach down inside, and this pilot has been reduced to raw bones. Like, it's been literally buffed. There's no meat on the bones or anything. And so he picks up what he thinks is like an arm bone, you know. He takes it over to the general. He's like, hey, you know, this is probably the pilot's arm bone. He's like, how the hell did that happen right? Now, the continuity problem is the following. This stuff is very deadly, right? They opened the rat cage and killed the other rat. This stuff was obviously all over the plane, making it melt, you know, melting into dust, basically, right? And the pilot's just been eaten alive down to his bones. And they're sitting there just handling the bones and they're handling stuff. And the funny thing was, one of the guys walks up with the guy, what's left of his mask, which is everything that's not this organic plastic, and he's got it in a bag, you know, because, boy, you don't want to touch the mask, but here's his arm bone. That's one of the funny things. And it almost feels like this sequence was filmed later because it doesn't have quite the polish that everything else has, meaning it doesn't have the the facts uh, and the, the quarantining and all that kind of stuff. They should have had the dudes in the suits, right? They got three suits built. They could have put, I don't know if they're exactly to the height of those actors, but they could find somebody and have them look it over and have them look at the bone and, you know, and be using a video camera or something to show them over a camera feed or something. Nope, they walk right up to all this contaminated stuff and just get it all over themselves and everybody's fine. There's a bit of a continu- there's a bit of a a way out uh, that's going to reveal itself here shortly. But a big alarm goes off inside the facility. Where Dutton is, where he's trying to conduct more tests, the seals are starting to break. The seals. Why did they show you the pilot and his seals breaking and all the rubber breaking, which is actually this plastic stuff, because they want a plot mechanism so you understand why level five starts to basically turn to dust anywhere there's a two pieces of metal and a seal, right? It's just like the seals they used in uh, the mission to the moon, right? They don't work in a vacuum. <laughs> they just don't, right? But so it starts contaminating. And so uh, Hall and Stone are in the room and they're looking at Dutton through the screen and uh he's in there breathing he's looking around like oh my god you know i don't know how much time i got and he's like well it's been three minutes man hang in there buddy i'm putting you on pure oxygen we know that it doesn't like to live in pure oxygen so just just chill out relax we're working on something now meanwhile hall keeps looking at the baby and the old man he's trying to figure out he goes there's something between these two guys why would a guy who's suffering from ulcers, be exactly the same as a young baby who's just crying a lot. What the hell is the difference, right? And so they're in that room, and Hall has an epiphany. He's trying to figure out what, what the issue is, and he figures out that it's, it's something about the blood. It's not something about anything else. It's about the state of your blood. And so he asks, asks Anson very quickly, give me the pH balance blood test right now of those two guys and the, the baby and the old man. And she's like wanting to feed the baby because it hasn't eaten much the whole time it's been here and it needs to eat something, right? 
So they basically feed it a little bit and they pull the bottle out so it keeps crying and they so he's getting nutrients but he's not being satiated to the point of not crying. And they get this report and it's the pH balance of the blood. And it's this very narrow band. Yeah, they show a bell curve. And I believe it's 7.41 if I'm right. That is the pH balance where this Andromeda strain thing grows. Now, the thing is, is the old man, I think, is alkaline. No, he's negative uh, below that point. And the kid is the exact exact pH balance as the old man, but he's in the positive. So the man's negative and the old man, uh, the young kid's positive. And in between is this weird narrow band. And so he's like, oh, my God. He clicks into Dutton's sound, you know, because they turn it off while they talk. And he says, I'm putting you on room oxygen. Breathe as fast as you possibly can. And of course, Stone's like, what the hell are you doing? You know, he goes, look at this chart right here. He goes, we, he goes, these two folks, the kid crying all the time and the old man drinking this Sterno has screwed up their blood chemistry. We've got to get the Dutton all screwed up by hyperventilating, right? And so they finally Stone's on board and he's like, okay, Dutton, breathe as fast as you possibly can. He goes, just hyperventilate, hyperventilate, right? And they're throwing all the right medical information. It's really a fun scene to see, right? And so Dutton's like on board. Because Dutton's first like, don't let him do that. Don't let him change my oxygen. You know, just Hall doesn't know enough to do any sort of executive decisions at this point. But finally Dutton gets it. And they send the pH balance over to Dutton's computer so he can see it. Finally, he's on board. Now at that moment, the camera switches over to a rat that's crawled out of its cage in this exposed environment, and it's fine. Well, the rat's not hyperventilating. The rat's pH balance is okay. And so Stone calls it. He's like, hey, man, it looks like whatever happened in your room there, uh, so, uh, I was going to say soil and green, <laughs> hilarious, Andromeda has gone to an inert state where it's no longer lethal. You're okay. Now, the problem is, is that the seals are starting to melt everywhere. So even though it's not contagious and deadly anymore, it's still doing the same thing to all these seals all throughout level five. Well, remember the nuke problem. The, it was armed by Stone at the beginning of the uh, movie. Call's been given the red key to turn it off. He's the odd man out hypothesis, right? And he says, look... The red key is worthless unless the computer starts the countdown. And there's this amazing little effect. I don't even know how they did this. But there's a point where Stone and Hall look at this clock on the wall. And the, the, uh, the computer starts the countdown. And these second hands swing up to the top of the clock. And somehow, in camera, it must just be a cool rotating um, mask or something... It, it, it goes to 12 o'clock and then it pulls back to one and makes it red inside this clock. It's the coolest scene when you see it. You're like, whoa, how the hell did they do that? It must just be a cool little rotating thing. But man, it's smooth as glass. You should see this little mechanism. And all of a sudden the countdown's on. And so they know Hall's got to get his key to one of those stations. But not all the stations work because they weren't all built yet because the place isn't finished yet. There's a lot. It's, it's probably two-thirds work and one-third doesn't. So they start hauling ass down this corridor trying to get to one of those stations, and the computer is sealing the doors 
So just before they get to the station, they can see it in the camera. It's like really close to us and they're running towards us, right? Here comes the door. Boom. Cuts them off. They can't get to it. And now they're in a corridor. They can't get to it. They can't get to any of these stations, which is kind of stupid. I mean, you think about it, right? (laughs) That it's cutting everybody off. But the one that's supposed to be available in that corridor is just a bunch of wires hanging out of a conduit system, right? So he's like, oh my God, I'm in the one place where it's not wired, right? And so they're starting to do some fast thinking. He's like, what the hell can we do? And he goes, uh, Stone goes, you got to go to the next level. You got to go up. He says, well, how the hell can I get up? We're all sealed in here. And he goes, well, in that room with the kid and the old man, there's a little door at the bottom area. This is what I remember the most about seeing as a little kid. This is about the time I really started watching the movie, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. He says, you got to get in there. You got to cut yourself out of the glove, and you got to go through this little door. And that'll put you in the center column, which actually contains the other central elevator area, but this is outside the elevator. It's just a bunch of spiral um, balconies with these fin- these uh, sorry these ladders that go up. But in order to make there more tension in this, they, uh, they basically say that at the bottom, uh, for security reasons, there's these lasers and uh, freaking lasers everywhere, right? So they look like little like elongated security cameras, but they're lasers. And so Stone says, look, I'm going to get on the computer and I'm going to monitor where the lasers are pointing. You get in there and you start crawling up these ladders and I'll tell you when to duck out of the way because I'll see that the laser's on you. And this is where they have another kind of ingenious graphic that was of the times, right? They do this little crazy climber graphic of a human being with like four limbs and a little body and a little head. And so Stone starts watching this thing and it's showing where the laser is. And he's saying, duck left, you know, duck, duck. And so Hall's, you know, he went through that door and now the lasers are hitting the everywhere, but they're not hitting Hall. And he gets up to the, the uh, fourth level. And it's, it's locked. He can't get in because it's been exposed. The seals have busted on three or on four. So now he's going to get to three. So now he's like, oh, crap. He starts crawling up the ladder. And all of a sudden, obviously, law of averages, a laser hits him in his left cheek. And it really screws up his whole consciousness. He's in shock, you know. And he's like, oh, God, you know. And he gets nailed in his hand. And he's trying to get his ass up there. And the key which has been around his neck the entire time, is now in his hand. And so luckily it's wrapped around his wrist. He doesn't drop the damn thing. Could have been an easy sort of Spielberg-y suspense mechanism where he drops the key, doesn't drop the key, thank God. And he ends up uh, getting himself to one of the doors. And now his hands hurt and he's got to turn this gigantic, beautiful, like stainless steel, uh, polished, like chrome-looking... apparatus to get the door to open manually so he barely has the energy to do this and he opens the door and he's got to get on the other side of the seal door and close it otherwise uh, none of the systems will work in that area and so he closes that and there's this woman standing there and his vision is now this kind of swirly vision sort of like the last frames i show you in this episode right of the deep thoughts logo uh, or the the domain swimming around And so he's like, help me, help me out. You know, I'm leaving out a few things that'll be fun for you to see uh, prior to the scene. But he has to run down the hallway and he's just, he sees the damn thing, man. He's trying, this woman just runs off. She doesn't help him out at all. And she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't understand the odd man out and the red key. 
And so he runs down there and he, it's almost like rollerball ending. He sticks the key in the hole and he falls back and he's like, oh my God. And this woman's counting it down, man. She hits 20 and then she starts reading every single number and gets down to about eight seconds and he reaches up and clink, he turns that key and poof, it's over. Nothing blows up. It's good. They run a little sequence uh, after that. They have two scenes where one, they all kind of, he wakes up in a hospital bed and they're all around him and, and Levitz makes a joke. She's like, Levitt goes, uh, oh, you know, you, you know, we only had eight seconds to spare. It was hardly even exciting, you know. But now we have the Andromeda strain out in the public still, right? It's still floating around in Piedmont. Well, they put together an explanation why it all went dead. And here's what's funny. It goes out over the South uh, Pacific. So it kind of goes over Baja and goes out into the ocean. And they talk about the fact that they're going to seed the clouds with silver to make it rain. And then it's going to wash it into the ocean. And then the what's in the ocean will actually kill it. And there won't be any more Andromeda strain. And everything will be okay. Interesting, right? So that's Andromeda strain. What's interesting about it for me and we won't be reviewing anything that's sort of out of the pocket anymore, is that, uh, this is just an absolute cold classic film we want to talk about, is that this is all billed as a real thing, that this really happened and that Crichton somehow got the story from the military. And they, the, the bumper at the beginning talks about how the military actually said, we want, to get you, we want you to make the facts as correct as possible in this movie. And so the idea is that they found uh, this crystalline protein life that just, it's a simply a mathematical thing. It didn't say, hi, how you doing, right? It's not like the virus that was in Red Dwarf episode, which is one of the most hilarious episodes out there. So it's hard to believe that that would be real. I think it's just a Hollywood stunt to make you want to go see this film. What it kind of subliminally exposes is the idea that bioweapons are something that the military plays with. And there's a lot of comments I neglected to tell you about that are about people getting really angry at Stone at, some, at one point in the film saying, you know, this has all been a military thing, man. They wanted this. They wanted to capture this and they wanted to isolate it and they wanted to make it a bioweapon they could use against an enemy. If you watch the whole film, I think you'll come to the conclusion that's not exactly remotely what was going on in the fictional uh, movie that was going on. Stone was just simply being accused because he's the one that commissioned the $19 million laboratory that they were in. He at no point reveals anything. Now, if it was the guy from Aliens who's trying to bring back the alien to create a, bio, a weapon against somebody, the corporation, then it would have been a real sleazy character that, uh, I'm surprised they haven't remade this thing and made that guy super sleazy. But there's a lot of opportunity to redo this and make it interesting. The science is is really impeccable. It got so um, so well explained that the first time I saw it again about two years ago, when I saw the electron microscope thing, I immediately called it out in the room. Like, that's a crystalline protein crystal. That's, that's the life force, you know. And then Levitt comes in and says the same thing. So you will have, uh, you will have all of the dots, I's dotted, the T's crossed for the science to really make this a, a very believable thing. It's super cool. They don't, I believe, talk about what happens to Piedmont, but that town's been utterly erased except the old man and the little boy whose name was Max, by the way, Manuel. It's a really well-made movie, and if you're a Doug Trumbull fan, 
which some of you sci-fi people are because you just follow his follow his films and they're usually all extremely entertaining. But I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Know that in the next several episodes, we won't be doing movies at all. So if you're here for film, uh, know that you can go back. We have reviews of uh, Blade Runner, Rollerball. I'm going to make a movies category on the website too. So just help you find all this stuff. I did one on Star Trek that I think is very important. And, and many years after I made my Star Trek episode, I had seen recent productions where they were basically asserting the same thing, which is Star Trek is one of those one of those worlds where socialism is perfect because society was allowed to be educated at the same time. So it's not a tyrannical socialism. It is truly society helping society. There is no money. You can do what you are born to do, regardless of what race you are, whether you, you could be a non-human and you could live on Earth and do stuff. So there's definitely a genre for this kind of content. We're going to get into a few more cerebral concepts I've been working on. Uh, I'm just trying to make sure there's good meat on the bones, you know, for those other episodes. I am, uh, just for those of you who are hanging on at the last second here, I am not doing uh, chaos episodes right now because it's simply too toxic to talk about what's going on right now. And I think there's just not enough data. Sometimes we're all, sometimes you're in the middle of something and you don't want to talk until you get to some sort of act three and you're going, oh, I see, you know. So if you're looking for that kind of content, I'm going to hold off for maybe another month before I get involved with this kind of stuff. Those are only found on rumble.com. So, and there's a bias, a political bias in that a little bit, but you'll find out I'm usually a middle of the road kind of guy. So it's good on both sides, but one side's gone so crazy. You can't really say that, say much about that anymore. But anyway, if you haven't been to deepthoughtsradio.com, that's where all the content is. I'm moving stuff around and I've made an edit to the, uh, the YouTube uh, category on the website. What's going on right now is that, you know, I have season one, if you're an old time listener, I've got season one on a different channel on YouTube. And then everything uh, 101 and up is on this particular channel on YouTube. Rumble has it all. BitChute has it all. Actually, BitChute has it all. Rumble is missing a few episodes. But what YouTube is doing is going back to old episodes. And it's funny. The agendas that are tearing our world apart right now and being talked about openly in the UN, EU, and the WEF are the episodes that they're taking out right now. Super old episodes. Uh, so what ended up occurring is I also created a mirror channel. And it was, it's, it's totally unpublished. You can't see that stuff, but I just backed it up over there. Over there, they had nailed a ton of episodes and I, I don't care because it's just this channel off to the side. So I marked a bunch of those dead on YouTube, but they're still alive on this particular channel or on the season one channel. So now what my new policy is, if it's completely erased from all YouTube uh, viewability, there's a special playlist over on the website where you can watch it through Rumble or BitChute. And it's, it's interesting. It's literally what they're worried about. They're worried about you seeing that content. So if that entices you at all, there's tons of episodes to see. We're now probably 770 episodes created with probably at least two dozen gone because they're, they're not important. Or a lot of them are chaos reports, which I take off because they're just current events and there's no reason leaving it on there and you listening to someone rant about 2015 or whatever, right? So I hope you enjoyed the episode. To the Patreon and PayPal folks, thank you so much. You make it happen. Take care of yourself and someone else, and I'll see you on the next Deep Thoughts. Over now.